1: In an evenly divided Senate, every senator has the ability to be a kingmaker, but West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin has taken it to the next level. At a time when Democrats in the majority in Congress are assembling a complicated piece of legislation called Build Back Better, which is the centerpiece of President Joe Biden's agenda, Manchin has had a huge influence on perhaps its most consequential piece, how to address global climate change. A former governor and now a veteran senator from a state long associated with the coal industry, Manchin has insisted clean energy provisions be stripped and the effect on the fossil fuel industry be minimized. One question is, why? What motivates Manchin to stick to his guns even in the face of overwhelming evidence that the planet needs to wean itself from fossil fuels as soon as possible or face catastrophe? Why does a lifelong Democrat seem to drive his colleagues so nuts? What are the issues pushing Manchin and his state? We're going to explore some of these issues on political theater in this episode. First, with one of CQ Roll Call's own reporters, and then by revisiting an interview we did a little while ago with Andrea Billups, news director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. First up, though, is Ben Hulak, who covers energy and environmental issues here at CQ Roll Call. Ben, welcome to political theater.
0: Thanks, Jason. How are you?
1: I'm great. I'm great. I, uh, I this This is one of those topics that... I can't get enough of, um, you know, as a cub, uh, journalist, I, my first job here in Washington was with Greenwire. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I got a, a early taste of environmental policy. And then I spent a couple of years in West Virginia after that, uh, working with the AmeriCorps program, uh, and even working, uh, for Senator Manchin's wife, Gail, who was uh, the head of the program. So I, I, I could can, I can't get enough of this topic uh, and the, and the convergence of the two and uh, and I'm glad you're covering it for us.
0: Well, it's been fun. It's um, yeah, obviously Manchin has this this uh, position in the Senate now where he can dictate much of the direction and obviously that's um, it's a it's a massively powerful position being that that breaking vote um, and he's really asserted himself, in a myriad ways on on climate energy policies, as I'm sure we'll get into.
1: Yeah, so the original vision for you know on the Senate side, uh, and which was you might call it like the the, the version that Bernie Sanders uh, thought was a compromise to begin with, uh, but was uh, you know it, it had I mean, granted this is this bill that they're assembling through the reconciliation process. This is. Not just a climate change bill. It's a it addresses a variety of programs. Uh, it would provide paid leave. Uh, you know, it would shore up you know the healthcare system. Uh, you know, but but climate change was a big part of it. Let's talk about what the original vision was, and then let's talk about how Mansion affected it.
0: I would the original vision, and and because climate change affects society and the world in so many ways, it's hard to boil. Down the original vision to in its entirety, it's hard to pinpoint exactly every climate program, but I'd mentioned three key ones. The one that you've heard probably the most about is um, a, an electricity program, a clean electricity program that has, has worked its way through the house and uh, would, would basically penalize, would fine electric utility companies in the country that don't move away from fossil fuel sources fast enough and then pay. Uh, utilities that do. So utilities are making a jump to wind and solar um, and even nuclear. It's, It's written in a very broad, technologically neutral way and would benefit utilities that aren't using emitting sources, greenhouse gas emitting sources. And the other two I'd quickly touch on. One is a methane fee. Methane is this incredibly potent greenhouse gas. It's far more potent than carbon dioxide. It's very dangerous to the planet. And there's a lot of flaring of methane from drilling sites across the country. And this fee would be levied against companies that don't clamp down on their methane emissions. And then the third one was sort of akin to um, a New Deal uh, program, but sort of a public works program called the Civilian Climate Corps. And that was the idea there was, um, which you'll hear from a lot of Senate Democrats like Ed Markey And Jeff Berkeley of Oregon, for example, talking about this need for this climate core to bring um, young Americans together, get them working outside, get them um, working on on federal projects, sort of akin to an FDR-style movement. Um, Those are the three pieces. And right now they're under uh, a lot of pressure and, and perhaps gone because of Manchin's opposition to them.
1: You know, Manchin has made some public statements about this. I mean, there, there's. I we, we should mention too that I mean, Mansion's not the only person trying to shape this this piece of legislation. He's just uh, become kind of the public face of internal Democratic discussion. Kirsten Sinema has been a little bit more behind closed doors in her negotiations with the White House and with Democratic leaders. But about, you know, it seems like Manchin is one. He's surrounded by reporters all day long. As soon as he's <laughs> in the Senate, there's this gaggle, you know, it, it it almost looks like, you know, a cartoon, you know, uh, of, of people following him all the time. He's a tall guy too. So he stands out. Uh, and, and, uh, and then he's on TV a lot too. And he's in, he's in the public eye and, and going to, you know, sort of events and so forth. So, um, like what is, what has he said, you know, let's start with the clean energy thing. Like, you know, why, why, why does he? You know, there's there's a long sort of history of using incentives to to address uh, pollutants, right? I mean the the way that we addressed acid rain in the 80s and 90s was we we created a cap and trade program where people could, you know, they they had the motivation. To have a certain number of credits, and they could if they came under those underneath those targets, they could sell their credits to other people it it, it was the free market at work, uh, but just sort of underwritten by government what is manchin what does Manchin say about why he doesn't like providing incentives to move away from fossil fuels
0: one, i don't think he has an answer. I have yet to hear a a significant climate approach from Senator Manchin. i don't think any reporter has. In general, he says we should work together, and he'll talk a little bit about reducing methane, but that's about it. His criticism of the electricity program is that this is already happening, that this transition is already underway. And across the country, that's broadly true, but in, in his state, it's not true. Um, electricity from coal generated in the boundaries of West Virginia has harbored around 90%. For the past decade. So it's, it's stabilized there. It's inched down very slowly, but it has not followed national trends. So it has remained this coal powerhouse, at least for electricity generation purposes. And it seems to be on track to do that for a good long time. In fact, the public utility of the state actually just um, ruled that three coal plants that were slated to retire in about seven years. Are going to be extended until 2040. So the state is locked in to this coal future, and even other coal-powered states that have traditionally been these sort of safe spaces for the for the fuel for coal—Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wyoming, Kentucky, Indiana—they um, are decarbonizing at a faster rate. So West Virginia really is this outlier among its peers and nationally. So that's that's. That's where he comes from. And he. if you talk to folks in West Virginia, there is a bit of bitterness. I'm I'm wildly generalizing, generalizing, but there's a broad theme that it is not fair for West Virginia to reduce its emissions when the coal that's dug in the state creates electricity that then filters out to its neighbors, that powers people's houses in Pittsburgh and Cleveland and across the region. And there's there's of course plenty of truth to that. This is not a simple problem, Um, and it requires a lot of cooperation from both users and generators of electricity. So it's it's all interwoven and it's tricky. And so Mansion feels sort of like the last man standing.
1: And I I think that's that is a good point. That you know if it was just. Electricity generated for West Virginia that really wouldn't be that much of a problem. It's a fairly small state. Um, you know, it's it's losing a, a house seat in reapportionment because the 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 rate of population growth is is so small. Um, you know, it's not a big state in terms of its you know its geographic imprint. So, uh, but it does, as you said, it provides all this uh, electricity throughout the Ohio River Valley, in particular. Uh, and and also not just coal, but it is a big producer of natural gas as well, which is while not as much of a greenhouse gas pollutant as coal is still a fossil fuel and still contributes to to climate change. Um, so so like. There are, I mean, Manchin does, you know, say like, you know, he is representing the, you know, like the interests of his state, but he also has, um, he's come under some criticism too for the fact that his, he and his family have invested uh, in in the fossil fuel industry at a rate. And how does he respond when when brought up, when, when these sort of issues are brought up?
0: Well, I was not part of that gaggle. I was not, uh, I was not swarming him on a day on the day when um, I think it was a Bloomberg reporter brought that up to him. But yeah, he, he did not respond well, uh, basically snapped at, at the press gaggle there um, who had broached his, the, the fact that he has, he brings in in his personal income um, about half a million dollars for the year 2020. Um, that is just from his latest financial disclosure statement. Uh, so yeah, he has a, a stake in the future of the state politically and financially, and it's hard to imagine that climate policies uh, passed at the federal level wouldn't erode that financial stream. So um, he is none too pleased when you bring this up. But this, I would point out, this has been known for years. This is, this, uh, he's, if you look back in his financial disclosures for at least a decade, this, is, this has been on those statements. So this is not a new fact, right? And and
1: uh, yeah, I would also state that he have he wasn't as important <laughs> a dozen right, years ago. Right. So we don't we don't look yeah at some of those things, right? <laughs> this
0: this is what happens when you're when you're the kingmaker. The report reporters start looking around and looking into your paper, and um, stories like this come up.
1: Well, Ben, thank you so much for walking us through this. This is uh, it's it's sometimes hard to get a handle on it because it is a global uh, issue. But I think uh, uh, you know we've we've found a good angle, and I appreciate uh, your reporting on it uh, on on previewing the climate uh, conference, and then also about Senator Manchin uh, and West Virginia and and its sort of coal uh, culture, if you will. Yeah. So, coal culture. Uh, <laughs> th- thanks so much. Indeed, thank you. Now we turn to Andrea Billups, news director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, who we spoke to in June. While it's not a comprehensive answer to the question of what makes Manchin tick, we thought it would be interesting to return to that conversation to get the view from someone who knows West Virginia and Joe Manchin at the ground level. Joe Manchin is is really almost the fulcrum of the United States Senate right now. I mean, he uh, came out in opposition to uh, a, a high priority bill from House Democrats and 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 House, and Senate Democrats a uh, voting uh, overhaul bill and w- and when he voiced his opposition to it, it basically declared it kind of over. <laughs> um, I mean, very few people have that kind of power. Uh, you you uh, have been a journalist for for years and have also studied uh, the the state and its politics uh, from academia and journalism. Um, let's talk about where he where he comes from and what his you know evolution of him as a politician.
2: So I would have to say that Joe Manchin is about as true blue West Virginian as you could get. Um, He grew up in a town called Farmington. And I think the closest larger place to Farmington is Morgantown, maybe you could say Fairmont is a city that would be closer to him. But he he is a a homegrown product. He attended West Virginia University. His grandfather was a, a merchant, his father, um, was a merchant, and he he studied business administration. And he, I would say that his he comes by politics as a legacy because both his grandfather and his father were mayors of his hometown. Um, and he burst onto the political scene as a state lawmaker, I believe, in '82. And um, since then he has sort of ascended the ranks. He served in the House of Delegates here in the Senate and moved on as our Secretary of State and then became governor and then, you know, went to Washington. And so um, his tentacles in politics run deep and they straddle generations. And I am going to have to say that because of that, because he has sort of seen West Virginia evolve politically over those years, I think it probably has informed some of his thinking. And and people should understand, you know, why he sort of operates independently now. Um, I I think he sees the way forward, but he knows where West Virginia came from. And I do not think that his thinking is out of lockstep with a lot of people here, even people who may now identify as Republican.
1: Yeah. And that's one of those interesting things about West Virginia to me is that when I, I, um, uh, back in uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, I I was living there. I was in the AmeriCorps program um, and uh, and then I taught. And at that point, there were a a lot of people identified, you know, formally as as Democrats, but it was... um, it was a very certainly on a cultural level very conservative um I'm more more in line with um you know kind of the the politics of my home state arizona uh and and with with some you know some key differences about the support for unions uh and 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 things like that but it, it's it seems like one of the one of the things that makes west virginia so unique is that it's hard to peg as uh, solely conservative, solely liberal, solely Democratic, solely Republican. And Manchin, as you're describing, he he seems to embody that, that he's, I mean, he's first a West Virginian as opposed to being a Democrat, for instance.
2: No, I've lived in a lot of places and when people find out I'm from West Virginia, they're always very curious because it's hard for people to put a finger on the state. Um, it's kind of hard to get to. <laughs> Um, If you look at the terrain and landscape here, you you have to realize that the people who settled this place had to be independent because um, it's a tough place to crawl through to this day. Um, And I think that that sort of has bred a culture of independence. Um, I think that it has also perhaps bred sort of some insular thinking and what have you. But, you know, when we toss out words like conservative in this era... Um you know, I, I I I'd like to be very careful about doing that dance because if I, I love when journalists who are from major media outlets parachute into places like West Virginia and try and they stay here for all of 48 hours, they do the toe touch and they try to, you know, encapsulate how West Virginians feel and, and I just read a New York Times story this morning about West Virginia and politics and mansion And, the, you know, um, I, I think the gentleman who penned that story got it maybe 70 percent right. Um, but I, I think that to understand West Virginia, you need to spend some time with these people because there's a lot of nuance. When you say that we're conservative here, you know, that, that sort of rings a lot of bells and whistle- whistles in political Washington that I don't really think apply. These are not sort of firebrand, Ted Cruz Republicans here in West Virginia, per se. They are not that kind of strident thinkers. Um, I think West Virginians, who even identify as Republicans in this era, are still very moderate people. And I think that Joe Manchin knows that, and people know that about him, too. I still don't see him as an outlier overall. I still think he represents values that are conservative. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, to me, at least, it means that he's a family guy. He grew up in a close-knit family. He's a father of four kids. But he he lives in a marriage where his wife still cuts his hair, but she is still very engaged in her own way. She still does her thing. Is that a modern marriage? I think it is. Um, Joe Manchin spends a lot of time back home. Um, we just opened a clinic here in Charleston on the west side, um, a, t- a, a side of town in Charleston where where I think people have been forgotten for a while. And there, he, both he and Shelley Moore Capito were there for this, for this ribbon cutting and putting their faces out there. And I I think there's a lot of nuance when you say West Virginia is a red state. I mean, yes, it has trended red over the last 20 years, especially in its presidential politics. But um Joe Manchin is not out of step with a lot of people here.
1: With some of the stances that he's taken politically, um, you know, he he wrote a an op-ed for the uh Charleston uh Gazette Mail uh recently in which he stated his opposition to uh this this bill that would that would change, you know, it would establish minimum standards on voting and, and it gets into campaign finance and so forth. Um that's that's made him um sort of persona non grata with some of his colleagues who, who really, you know, they're, they're not happy about that, but it doesn't, I mean, it, it seems to me that he is canny enough that he knows that that's not, uh, that that's where his constituents are, that that's where his state seems to be.
2: So let's uh, let me answer that by jumping back. So people who are, the reason why there was a democratic stronghold in the state for so long is, I think can be traced to the labor movement here. You know, um, the unions held sway here. Um, they told a lot of their workers how to vote and, and their workers voted. And that was a Democrat always. And now, you know, you, that, that labor presence is, you know, very diminished here. Um, coal has struggled, um, the state industry. And so, you know, that has, now that people are sort of out from under what I would call the, the thumb of labor, I think people are thinking independently, and so they have shifted and drifted to the Republican Party. I mean, and, and I think there are reasons for that. I mean, this this legislation that um, Joe Manchin has said he's going to refuse to support this voter rights legislation, um, I would have to say, and, and I don't speak for him, but if, if I had to guess his thinking about this, I would say that he does really... He does not care what the progressive wing of his party cares about. Those things are not aligned with his long-term personal values. Um, and even though um, people who are on the squad and that are newer members of Congress who sort of get a lot of CNN hits and um, you know uh, they're keyboard warriors, they're all over Twitter uh, running it. I, I think that Joe Manchin just doesn't care what they think. I think he, he thinks I'm 73. I've been at this political game for a long, long time and none of your pressure makes any sense to me. I'm, I have nothing to lose here. I'm, he, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna vote my conscience in almost everything. And you can see if you just sort of look at things he's supported and hasn't supported, he's back and forth in alignment with his party per se
1: and in some ways i mean if if he is attacked by you know some of the progressives uh, particularly in the house i mean that may even help him uh, because he can he can point to that and say like i i'm not i'm not i'm being attacked you know by people who are out of uh what i think is out of the mainstream of west virginia politics and and almost uses it as like it it may even uh bolster because uh you know the he he has had no trouble you know with the, the any kind of progressive Uh, primary challenges in in the past and um if if anything he would probably have to worry about a a a challenge from the right uh in 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 any kind of primary
2: i suspect that's what's setting up for him during this next time around should he decide to run again i mean he didn't win this this last re-election by a whole lot you know in deference to that i mean the over under is um I don't know that I see anyone emerging in the wings here who has the kind of political clout that could, you know, um, marshal some support. I don't know who that next person waiting for him is is going to be. Um, I think he is more popular in West Virginia than outsiders might allow. And I do think that um, him sort of pushing back hard on the progressives there in Washington um, will help him here. People here certainly do not identify with those people.
1: So, what to make of Joe Manchin, the man having a moment here? Well, it's important to remember that power is wielded by those who take it, and that we are in a unique time in American politics. Other senators have wielded outsized power throughout U.S. history. Some recent examples. Arizona Republican Senator John McCain sank his party's best chance to repeal Obamacare after trying to do so for years. And he did it with some sass, with a dramatic late-night thumbs-down right in front of his party's leader, Mitch McConnell, and with Vice President Mike Pence looking on and President Donald Trump fuming at the White House. Ted Kennedy would sometimes terrify his Democratic colleagues when he got to negotiating legislation with Republicans. They knew he loved getting a deal, and he had the clout to cut loose some of his party's priorities in order to seal it up. That's one of the reasons he and Republican John Boehner were able to shepherd the no-child-left-behind law to George W. Bush's desk. There are other examples, so Manchin isn't alone in finding an opportunity and seizing it. He's helped by the Senate's 50-50 partisan split. This just doesn't happen that often. Every vote counts. There's a small window to get big-ticket legislation passed as the 2020 campaign heats up. Manchin knows this, and he is milking every last bit of influence he has. He won't be in the Senate forever, and it doesn't take much to change the dynamics in the Senate or the partisan split. One absence, one sickness, one resignation, one death, and everything changes. He's having his moment, but it won't last. It never does.